Hey everyone, this is Socratic Hobbits, a podcast where Kyle Morse and me, Daniel Hayward, try to ask big questions and then answer them. Sometimes we stay on topic. Thanks for listening. It sounds like it's raining in North Carolina right now. No, it's probably just the uh, the hard drive. We're in a way trying to capture all this data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, Kyle, you asked Doctor Blomgren to join us a little while back after reading his blog. Was there? I mean, we can chit chat for a while first, but I was just wondering which which of his blog posts was it? The one specifically about COVID? Well, it was actually. It was pretty funny because I was thinking, oh, because Dr. Blomberg told me that he was going to be doing a blog post on COVID. And so I was about to ask you, Kyle, if you would want to kind of give us a preview of what you're going to say on the show, or if you would want to wait until you published your blog post and then expand on different aspects in it from it on the show. And then you published it. So I went, well, option A is no longer an option. So we'll just go with option B and see if there are parts that when you wrote it out, you went, I'd really like to develop this more or emphasize this um, in, a, in a more long form setting. And if anyone hasn't, any of our listeners haven't seen the post, I know I've shared it with a few people, but um you go to blue hat to white coat. Um, that's the name of Dr. Blomgren's blog. And he has a post there specifically about um, his experiences with COVID in the 10th busiest emergency room in the United States, which is located in a county which is escaping my memory right now in North Carolina. Uh, Cumberland County. Cumberland County. Thank you. So, yeah, that's my intro. There you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wanted to, I know part of why I was interested in talking with you, Dr. Blomgren, which feels really, feels really weird, but otherwise it's just Kyle and Kyle. Um, <laughs> yeah, is, we've only, we've only known each other and been roommates for 10 years now. And, and just yeah. now in the last three months had a change in title. Yeah, no That's big deal. right. That's right. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, was, I was just wanted to talk to you about, you know, I wanted to talk about communication you know, related to COVID because, uh, I mean, in science generally, just because it's, you know, Americans specifically, and maybe, maybe much wider than that have kind of had to have a a crash course in, um, perhaps scientific uncertainty and, um, maybe some of the mythos around science has kind of like has been changed pretty significantly. Mm-hmm. I recall having the impression when I was younger going through school that science was, you know, it could change. There were things about it that could change, but nothing of great importance that was communicated to, at least to me, was at risk of it kind of any, any uncertainty. And by the, by the time I was getting information, there was not the the risks or the well, I don't know how to say it, but just the the stakes were very, uh, very low um, where with COVID, 
the risks are pretty significant and the uncertainty is pretty high. And so, so I would just be interested to hear, you know, related to communication, related to empathy, related to, you know, your experience in the emergency department. Yeah. Some of those things. Right. And this actually fits really nicely with another show we've been talking about doing kind of as a collaboration with Dr. Bomberman, which is a, um, a, a, a role. <laughs> let me see if I can get this right. Uh, a role-playing podcast. Um, but, but the main point of this being that it's, it's about telling a story while you're creating it. And so, um, a couple of the questions I had asked Dr. Baumgren to, to think about, um, outside of his, his blog post are around, um, well, I guess one, his blog post, uh, telling the story of his experience and then two, um, talking about anecdotes versus statistics, which is kind of, I think what Daniel, you were getting at where anecdotes are very, uh, powerful little stories that we hear. And as a result, because they're a story that that's attached to a person we know, they carry a lot of weight. Whereas a statistic, um, because it's, it's kind of sanitized math. It's abstract. Um, yeah, sanitized, like you said, Daniel, it's, it's harder to get someone excited about a statistic unless they're a baseball nerd. And <laughs> that's the only thing baseball nerds can get excited about. That's the only thing sort about of baseball true. that's exciting. And that's also <laughs> can be true. Um, if you watch sports center during the summer and you see the 60th, uh, catch of a fly ball, you kind of go, okay. Um, Anyway, yeah, so statistics aren't super exciting unless, for most people, is kind of what you're saying. Well, and there's lies, darn lies, and statistics. So statistics are numbers that can be played with, manipulated to say whatever the heck you want, whereas an anecdote really um, emphasizes a person's experience, and it's more tangible than almost anything else that statistics could ever produce. Um, before we go too much further, I just need to make a couple of boilerplates just because of my new uh, um, roles and responsibilities. So first and foremost, anything anything I say does not is uh, represents my own opinion, does not represent the opinions of my or perspectives of my employer. Uh, number two, anything I say does not constitute medical advice. <laughs> uh, t- for medical advice, go to your own private physician or, or someone you have a medical relationship with. And third, I don't have any financial uh, conflicts of interest. If anyone has financial conflict of interest, you can reach me at uh, bluehat2whitecoat.home.blog. <laughs> um, but my name is Dr. Kyle Blomgren. I am an intern physician here in North Carolina. And so, yeah, we're uh, going back to, I think, Daniel's question, I think is a great place to start this discussion about what is the difference between kind of scientific discourse evidence and where we're at. So the the first thing to really, I think, dig into and realize is that science cannot prove anything. Science does not prove truth. Science does not convey truth. Science gives our best understanding of the world around us within the limitations and the confines that it's able to test. So there's different layers of or different rankings and the hierarchy of quality of evidence. So 
Um, it depends on who you ask, but the, the most rigorous scientific study is a randomized controlled trial or a meta-analysis where you take a bunch of randomized controlled trials and compile them together to get a composite of, of all of that data. In a randomized controlled trial, you take a, a population of people and you randomly split them into different interventions, different treatments, and you keep one of those randomized groups wherever the baseline is. And then you see what changes come from that. And that allows you to figure out what change is directly related to your intervention and does not have any sort of bias because of, you know, say you're testing men versus women and you're testing a, a prostate cancer drug. Well, obviously it's not going to work in the women because they don't have prostates. Mm, that makes sense. You know, so being able to randomize gets rid of a lot of that extra bias. Unfortunately, there's only so many things we can test with randomized controlled trials. I'm, I still have yet to see the line of people uh, willing to be the randomized controlled trial for parachutes, for example. Mm. Okay. So there's only so much that scientific evidence can tell us, and it's, it fully depends on the capabilities of the scientist at the time. So when you look way back in antiquity, you know, there were ideas that we had about medicine. So one of them was um, the miasma theory of disease. And the miasma theory of disease came around um, around the time of Black, the Black Death or, or the bubonic plague in the 11, 12, 1300s. And the miasma theory of disease said that if it smells bad, it's probably going to make you sick. So this is kind of the reasoning behind the old um, uh, medicine doctors with the big, long bird beaks that mask would be filled with flowers or perfumes or other good smelling things. And then the physician would walk into the house with the person dying of bubonic plague and they wouldn't smell the, the sense of death. They would smell the flowers in their mask. And that is how they believed they would not get sick. Well, was that necessarily wrong? Not if you look at pure scientific evidence, no, because that was all they could test at the time. They didn't know that bacteria or viruses or fungi existed. They didn't understand that there were diseases outside of infectious processes because people usually died of infectious things before they could develop you know, heart disease or lung disease. Um, and so way back then, the miasma theory was the, the most up-to-date. If I can interject here, Kyle, it sounds like you're kind of describing the difference between um, observations and first principles reasoning, where the observation was the smells bad, people get sick. First principles would go to what is the bacteria or, or the virus and how does that bacteria or virus interact with the body? I don't think it's as much of a first principles thing as it is a um, association versus causation. Mm. And to, to kind of back up a step as well, all of science is about observations. Um, you can't, even when you create a test, you are recording your observations. You're not able to do anything more than that because you can't, you can't record what you can't observe, if that makes sense. Um, but causation and association, and, and this is why a setting like a randomized control trial is actually very useful because you know, there is an association between global warming and the number of pirates that are roaming the seas. Why? Because we have more piracy today with the Somali pirates and whatnot than we did back with 
the, uh, the Caribbean days. But does that mean that pirates are causing global warming? Well, some you know people might say yes, but uh, no, they're clearly not causing global warming. But there's an association rather than um, a causation event there. Hmm. Um, so to, to then go back and expand a little bit more on Daniel's point of, well, I thought that you know, when, when you were younger, everything was you know, settled. It all depends on what we can test at the time. And so the reality with science is that science is always learning. Science is always progressing. You know, my, my first day of medical school, um, our vice dean came up and introduced himself as a, um, you know, a 34th year medical student. Now, clearly that's a little bit tongue in cheek. He graduated from school 30 years prior. But the point still stands, even 34 years after he started medical school, he's still learning. And that's because science is always changing. Science is always learning new things. Uh, there was a blog post on a uh, paramedic news site that I read a number of years ago, and it said that these are 10 uh, EMT skills are no longer taught. And I read through it, and I had learned every last one of those 10 skills in my first EMT class back in 2008. You know, so so things are always changing. This is kind of a semantic thing, but I'm curious what you think about the statement "science is always learning new things" and the statement "scientists are using science to learn new things." I think it's semantics because um, okay. what is science outside of the scientists? Science itself is a concept. Something you said at the beginning of of kind of your thoughts there was that um, you know science can't prove truth or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I would be, I guess I'd be curious to hear, I mean, and yours as well, Kyle, um, thoughts about, so there's, you know, there's kind of a capital T truth. I think mm -hmm. that might be, when you say that, Dr. Blomgren, I think that might be what you're referring to, is that there's, there's not a settled fact that is no longer up to, you know, it no longer needs to be scrutinized. There's not really any scientific axioms per se. That's kind of more philosophical. Um, but there is kind of little t truth in science, at least I think, in that we can use the information that we learn. And I mean, that, that can always be expanded. There's always going to be nuance. There's always going to be I don't know, like there's, I, I guess I'm just like, I don't see there being a whole lot of breakthroughs related to how gravity works on earth. I mean, maybe there is, maybe, maybe there's some geologists or, uh, planetary scientists who, who are going to, you know, be banging it down to my door. But I, there are things that have been pretty well established that we can use to be very helpful because if they weren't, then we wouldn't be. It wouldn't be very it wouldn't be very useful to us so I think a good perspective on how and what the limitation of science are is looking at the way we measure statistics because even though I kind of poo-pooed at the beginning statistics is how we um, can say we are however confident that what we're observing is the reality of what we're observing and when you are trying to prove or disprove something statistically you have a concept called the null. And the null is there is no difference between two groups. And you don't prove a difference, you disprove the null. 
And so we're never actually proving anything. We're just getting enough evidence to disprove that there is no difference. And, you know, the you, one could take that as, oh, there is a difference. But no, we're just disproving that there is no difference. And the semantics in that case really, um, I think, matters because we, we don't ever really know where things are, are fully fleshed out. When you, you know, talking about gravity, Einstein had a lot of theories about gravity. And we're showing that more and more of them are, are appearing to be correct. But that's not to say that all of his theories are correct or that um, what we are demonstrating nowadays, um, and, and I'm not a gravitational scientist, I'm a, a, an intern physician, so um, I, I'm not going to go into specifics other than to say, um, you know, a couple science blogs have said, well, another one of Einstein's theories is seeming to be correct. Um, mm-hmm. But we're, we're able to demonstrate that some of these ideas are probably correct but the thing is is that without a certain amount of evidence to say we're pretty sure this is right or we're willing to bet you know a hundred million people's lives that this vaccine isn't going to you know kill everybody that we put it in it (laughs) put it in yeah there we go um like there's a certain amount of evidence that maybe we you know, maybe you're not comfortable saying uh, this is true, you know, like this, this is, this is a fact. But I think that it's you get to a a pretty odd place pretty quickly. If you say, there's, there's nothing that at all that can be. I mean, I guess why would you do science if you can't gain any kind of information from it? So I think this is the rub between scientists or you know healthcare practitioners and the general public because what we have come to terms with as scientists is that we can only act on the best information we have at the time and we will be wrong and we will make mistakes and we will do things that are incorrect and unfortunately the lawyers only come in after the fact to remind us how we were wrong but the reality is we acted on the best information we had at the time Whereas the general public says, oh, science must be right. Therefore, we can only go with what is definitive, what is proven, what is true. But, but I'm not saying what you, I'm not saying that what, I'm not saying you're coming up with or scientists are coming up with what is true. I'm saying that scientists, there is a preponderance of evidence, enough for them to act on, to say, you know what, we have done enough due diligence it wasn't, I mean, there, it wasn't, uh, I mean, related to the vaccine. It wasn't just that there was enough political pressure that it was like, well, we have to come up with something like that wasn't the, that wasn't why the vaccine came out when it did. It was because there were enough scientists, at least this is my opinion. You correct mm-hmm. me. Um, but that there were enough scientists who said, yeah, this is safe enough. And that's exactly it. You know, we, it's like a probability thing almost. Right. And so, you know, People have come up and asked me, well, I had a friend who this happened to after the vaccine. Well, I had this happen to me after the vaccine. And the, the, the reality is, yes, you know, nothing is 100% safe. Nothing is 100% perfect. However, the best evidence that we had back in November, and even still today, the best evidence that we have regarding the vaccines is that they are exponentially safer than, A, any other medication that we have 
ever produced. Um, but B, they are far safer than the alternative, which is catching uh, native coronavirus and uh, rolling those dice, so to speak. How much? So, so you said exponentially safer. I was talking with a mutual friend of ours, and he. Uh, I hope I'm relating what he told me correctly, but it was Kyle said, and then now I'm saying what he said, and I was just <laughs> like, "So this is so." So we'll just. I, just I think I think I know which mutual friend you are speaking to. That you guys, as as scientists, would expect out of a million people who catch COVID, ten thousand to die, and out of a million people who get the vaccine, you'd expect a thousand to die or to have, I guess. Okay. So let me, instead of saying die, let me say have severe negative reactions. Maybe that was it. Yeah. Something along those lines. And, and the exact numbers vary. Um, but you know, so, so for native COVID, we see roughly 80% are asymptomatic. So that means about 20% have symptoms it has a case fatality rate of about 0.3%. So for every, um, you know, one <clears throat> quick off the top of my head math, every thousand people that catches it, only one or three of them will die. So th- those numbers are really encouraging. However, when you expand that to the population. And those numbers have come way down thanks to a lot of scientific investigation in the medical community. Delta Delta variants throwing curves into that, but we'll get that. <laughs> um, but but that means you know when you ex- you know three out of every thousand that doesn't sound like a lot of people passing away. But when you expand that to the fact there's seven point five trillion people on the planet, we're still talking about hundreds of millions of of people passing away from this thing. Um, really quick. It is a lot less than six out of a hundred, which we saw, which we were getting last April. <laughs> Right. So really quick back of the napkin math, there's 330 million people alive in the United States today with a case fatality rate of 0.3%. You're talking about roughly a million people dying of COVID. We've had 650, I think, something along those lines by now. That means there's still another another 350 to 400,000 people that are alive in the United States today that will die of COVID sometime here soon. Whereas Mm -hmm. the... um, the vaccine does not have that fatality rate. So if we were to vaccinate everybody, sure, there'd be, you know, thousands, tens of thousands who would have an adverse reaction of some kind, but that would still be saving, you know, 300,000, 400,000 lives. Hmm. And, and that's what you guys like to do as, as doctors. Is that right? So the, every now and then we try to do that. Um, but, but, you know, kind of going back to original point of statistics versus anecdotes, I can say all of that. You know, I can say that giving the, this vaccine to every person in America will save 300,000 lives. But then that mutual friend will turn around and say, yeah, but Joe Rogan's had three friends who has, have had really bad reactions to the vaccine. Well, yeah, Joe Rogan's an influencer and knows like everybody. So the fact that he only has three friends that had adverse reactions, that's really encouraging to uh, to a statistician like me. And it's unfortunate that those three individuals were hurt. But from a population standpoint, we're going to save more people. We're going to improve the quality of life for more people by doing this, this mass vaccination, by doing this mass public health intervention which again is far, when you're looking at a numbers game, it's far more beneficial, even though 
there will always be people coming forward and saying, well, I was harmed or, or my friend was harmed or my, my family member was harmed. Yes, but all of these other dozens or hundreds or thousands of people were not. Mm. I think the more insidious thing is, is when you, if we're going to stay on the vaccine topic specifically, is when you talk to a, a doctor who says, I've been at my clinic, we've been giving the vaccine and particularly to young adult males, they've been having a very high rate of, of issues. Um, and we've been pressured to downplay the, the issues at our clinic. On top of that, those young adult males, then uh, Delta may be changing this, but males under the age of 25 are not typically the people who have, who end up in the ER with COVID. And those are the anecdotes that get a lot, I, I at least get my attention a lot more. Sure. So to, for some perspective, the rates of adverse events of, um, and, and I'm specifically going to talk about Johnson and Johnson at blood clots, because those are the numbers I know more comfortably. Um, although, you know, young adult males are, are the target population of that adverse event. The uh, adverse rate of blood clots in Johnson and Johnson is lower than the adverse rate of being struck by lightning. So we're still talking, oh, that, you know, lots of people are getting harmed, but on the grand scheme of things, it's still safer than walking outside during a thunderstorm. Which most people try not to do anyway. <laughs> they try not to. Um, but as far as the, um, the, the Delta surge goes, yeah, we're, we're seeing about 80 to 90% of cases are Delta. So it is the predominant strain here in the United States. Um, and I was just and looking... Just to set the record straight, I, mm -hmm. I hear so many people go like, oh, there's no test for Delta. Like, how can scientists... How can the medical community tell us that 89% are Delta? So can you just, on the show, mm -hmm. set the record straight for how you guys know that it is Delta? <laughs> just like, Sorry for all like 20 people who listen. Just want them to know. <laughs> and, and I refer back to my original boilerplate that everything is my opinion. Um, but so the way that that was done is, yes, the test that I order in the ER, I, I order on the floors, is not going to tell me, the practicing clinician, which variant you have. So if, right, if I walk right. into a patient's room and say you have COVID and they ask what kind, I'll shrug my shoulder and say, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. The bad kind. Um, the kind that earned you a bed in my hospital. Like, let's just be, right. be frank about it. <laughs> um, but what they, there are abilities to test the different variants. And so what they did was they took a random sample, which is statistics, and then they are able to um, expand that exponentially to the greater population. So you know, against are they doing genetic take... sequencing or yes, yes. Okay. And it's, it's all genetic sequencing um, okay. because even the uh, MRNA vaccines, the uh, way they work is understanding the genetic sequence of the base RNA of coronavirus. Hmm. So yeah, Perfect. it's all, it's all genetics. The way that they know that 90% of COVID tests are, or COVID cases rather are from the Delta variant is they take, they use a statistical method to extrapolate from a subset of the population. Correct. And they're, they're doing that on a, probably a semi-regular basis. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's my, that's my understanding. I, I think it's the, pub, the local public health groups that run that. We don't do mm -hmm. that at the hospital. Um, okay. So that's, that's done outside of my um, area of operation. So when, so I got a COVID test on 
Thursday. I'd been feeling kind of crappy for about a week and was like, anyway, long story short, I went and gotten a COVID test. Um, and so the, it came back negative. Uh, but the people who it got sent to probably kept it and then tested it further, even Mm -hmm. though, so that is, is that right? Yes. It depends on where you got it from. Um, but a lot of times they'll, in amongst all the other things that you're signing when you sign to um, you know, be treated by healthcare, one of the <laughs> things they could have you sign is, can we keep your lab results for further, uh, for further testing? And so especially if you have a PCR, which is how we're able to sequence the genetics for anything, really. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when you have a PCR test, that's something that can be kept for later and um, reanalyzed as part of that. Well, what kind of variant did this individual have and comparing hmm. that to this subset of, um, of tests. I see. Okay. Interesting. Sorry. I, I, I distracted us from what you were just about to describe, which was, I, I believe what you're seeing in, in the hospitals, just because I wanted to like, yeah, just yeah, want to get so- on the record. So yes. getting, yeah, you want to be on the record. Um, so I looked up my local data um, just before we got together this morning because, you know, it's it was nine o'clock for me and six o'clock for you. So I had a little bit more time to look at data. <laughs> um, and as of right now in Cumberland County, where I'm practicing, only 25% of 25 to 49 year olds are vaccinated in that same population. And I'm pulling it up here just so I don't misspeak. Um, 40% of our cases are in 25 to 49 year olds in the ER, in the County. And then, um, in the ER, yes, the vast majority of people we're seeing are still on the older side, but we're seeing more and more younger people, um, more so than we're, um, we're seeing earlier on in the pandemic. And, um, you know, I, I didn't collate each of my, my COVID patients, but I would say most of my COVID patients were in that 40 to 50 range. Um, and then friends of mine who were working up in the intensive care unit while I was down at the ER were saying about the same thing. Our, um, all of our ICU beds were full. Um, in fact, we were keeping intensive care patients in the ER for days on end because we didn't have any ICU beds. And the vast majority of ICU patients, I think at one point it was like 90, 95% were COVID positive patients. And most of those were in the 30 to 50 age range. So you mentioned when we were talking that Cumberland is an underserved community. Mm-hmm. And I guess that brings up to, to my mind, what is um, on the range of hot dog eating contest contestant to uh, Olympic marathoner. Daniel thinks this is really funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's you've, you've painted a word picture, Kyle. And I just, it's, it's funny to me. Go on. Okay. So yeah. you've got a yeah. hot dog eating contest winner. And on that, an on that spectrum. Marathon. Yeah. Um, where, where do you, where would you say the majority of your patients fall? And are there surprises to you? in, in the IC or IC or in the ER. So, so we have a very interesting population here in Cumberland County. Uh, Cumberland County is the home of Fort Bragg, 
which is where the special forces and airborne divisions of the army live. So Fort Bragg has about 50 to 70,000 soldiers working on base. And that really drives a large demographic shift of this community because you've got tens of thousands of people who are young and otherwise healthy, who have families who are otherwise young and healthy. Um, Unfortunately, we are still here in the South and the South has a very um, big diet problem. Um, You know, there's, there's high rates of obesity, high rates of diabetes, high rates of high blood pressure. And so it's, it's a, it's a weird mix in our ER. Um, You know, most of our patients come to us because they don't have a family doctor that they see regularly. Most of our patients come to us because they have high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, that is otherwise not well managed. And so we see a lot of them coming in with really sick COVID, but we also get the otherwise young and healthy coming in too. Hmm. I I can't give you a definitive answer, but that that kind of describes our our patient population. Yeah. The data I really want to see that I I would love to see personally is, is, is COVID versus BMI. Hmm. And I haven't found it yet, but if I ever do, I'm going to be very excited. Uh, do you think that BMI is a particularly good I, I don't know, piece I don't, of information? It, it's not, it's not good. It's definitely better to add waistline into that, but generally speaking, we don't get that reported. So, so as a proxy, it, hmm. BMI is terrible. BMI is absolutely terrible. It, 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 it's a nice kind of at a glance. Like mm-hmm. if I see it exactly. on my chart and I see it's big and red and the BMI is 50, I know I'm going to walk into a, a patient that is years of uh, poor habits. A eating contest winner. Um, but BMI as a total is, is really not good because you could be Arnold Schwarzenegger and have a BMI of 40 and no one would say that man is obese and unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so BMI... I think you might say he's unhealthy. He's very fit. <laughs> no, and I'm very serious. Yeah, but you have to say fit fit for what, Kyle? He's he's fit for a bodybuilding competition. Oh, okay, all right. He's going to bump you up. And it's kind of like a marathon runner is fit for a marathon. So mar- the marathon was maybe a bad example because a marathon runner is actually going to be relatively fragile, I believe. Yes. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, but they're going to be fragile to things, well, Okay, they're obviously going to be fragile to uh, helping someone move a piano up the stairs. <laughs> they're like um, a glass cannon in an RPG. <laughs> Meta. Yeah, but um, <laughs> and and so also the special operation special operators in Fort Bragg. I mean, it's it's an open secret that those guys are trashed by the time they hit their late thirties. Um, they're very fit, but the thing with obesity when it comes to a risk factor for coronavirus is not necessarily your BMI. It is all the other things that go along with obesity. So obesity is a high inflammatory state in the body. And when you have chronic inflammatory states, that sets you up more for, like I've said, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, uh, vascular disease, strokes. Mm. And um, even just being in a modern day American lifestyle where we're, we're constantly going, 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 we're not getting really good sleep, we're drinking too much coffee, those are also high inflammatory states. And there's not a huge difference between, you know, the obese person and the overstressed, anxious, not sleeping well coffee drinker like your average can, medical can we, can we take coffee out of this? Sorry. Hey, I have mine right here before <laughs> my meeting in a couple hours. So uh, uh-huh. I, I have my coffee too. 
Okay. All right. All right. I just, you know, I don't, you know, very near and dear. As long as it's good Portland coffee, low acid, less inflammatory response, <laughs> high elevation, has lots of good polyphenols that help reduce inflammatory markers. I don't understand anything that you're saying. Coffee right is, is good. We, we all okay, okay, agree all right. on this. Thank you. <laughs> there, there are plenty of studies that show coffee from science that show coffee is good for that you. prove <laughs> without a doubt, definitively. And I have anecdotes that I feel really good after I have coffee. So... <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So these are all high inflammatory, you know, uh, basically being inflamed all of the time is bad for you. It is. And what makes COVID so dangerous is the inflammatory responses that COVID gives you. Um, so it's a, it's a mucosal virus. Um, so it, it reproduces in the mucosal linings of your nose, the back of your throat, um, it also seeds the GI tract. So what one big difference between COVID and flu is that a lot of patients can get nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea with their exposure as well. But it the spike protein on COVID attacks what's called an ACE receptor, an angiotensin-converting enzyme. And it's part of this big cascade that regulates blood pressure, but it's present on the inside linings of blood vessels. It's present pretty much all throughout the body. One of the places it's most prevalent is within the lungs. Um, and so you get this, you know, mucosal virus that attacks parts of the blood vessels. And whenever you get that um, outside agent interacting with the body, it triggers the inflammatory response. It triggers the immune response, which causes swelling, causes increased blood flow. That's why you get heat or warmth to areas that are infected. Um, it causes your temperature to raise it causes white blood cells to rush to the area. So there's all of these cascade of things that happen with inflammation. The it, Another part of that too is the clotting cascade is also kind of interrelated to this, um, to this cascade of things. And so you get inflammation, say, in your, your heart or in your brain, and you're decreasing blood flow, you're increasing the ability to clot. And so you're seeing COVID patients getting heart attacks. You're seeing COVID patients getting strokes. You're seeing COVID patients get blood clots in their lungs called pulmonary embolisms. You're seeing, um, you know, the, uh, the primary lung manifestation of severe COVID is called ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And essentially with ARDS, you get swelling and fluid between the inner lining of the lung, the alveoli and the blood vessel. That lining is usually microscopic, but incredibly thin because oxygen needs to diffuse from the inside of that air pocket, that alveoli into the blood and carbon dioxide out. When you get fluid between that, air doesn't move as well. And you can actually see that on chest X-ray. It looks like somebody took a chest X-ray and just poured snow over top of it um, to, the, to the point where, you know, we had a guy come into the ER and I, I told the story on my blog and he was altered and we were running through a big long list of things that it could be. We took a chest x-ray and I looked at it and said, this is COVID, like mm. just, just like that. Um, because it's it, not a lot of things cause a chest x-ray to look like that with the amount of swelling, without the amount of inflammation inside the lungs. And that's why these patients get really blow. Was that statistics or is that intuition? Yeah. And that's why these patients get really low um, oxygen levels. The, the lowest I had seen with a COVID patient was 46% um, oxygen saturation. 
That's and uh, that's real low. Uh, and oxygen saturation is kind of like a uh, a a spelling test for first graders given to you know college students. You you're supposed to be getting as close to hundred percent as possible. Um, mm, when you get yeah. down to the ninety two percent, that's when we start giving you a little bit of help with extra oxygen. So someone with forty six percent, that you know this this guy was Papa Smurf Blue. Like he, he was not doing good. Um, and I don't know what, uh, how he did afterwards, but I, I am not optimistic about how the rest of his course went. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's part of what's making COVID is so scary is just all of this inflammation and decreased ability to get oxygen into these patients. Yeah. When, uh, in your blog post, you use the phrase altered and you just used it here a minute ago. What does it, what does that mean? So to be altered means that your mental state is off. It's not normal. So mm. it's it's kind of a catch-all term. So if you're acting a little bit funny, if you're um, a little more sleepy, if you're just not responding at all, all of those are within the frame of altered. But mm. it's it's in a change from baseline of your mentation of your of your normal thinking abilities. I'm gonna have to start using that with friends. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, don't I, don't I, try it, it on your like, wife. It doesn't work out well. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would think that that would be somewhat, I mean, not, you know, some symptoms would be pretty obvious, but some would be more difficult. Like I would have a better read on whether you, Kyle, were altered or not than some doctor who had never met you, right? Like, oh, something seems off, even if you, you know, seem okay to somebody who's never met you. It's like, oh, no, you're normally different. You yeah, know. and some of those more subtle cases, we really do rely on family and friends. Mm, um, okay. But you know this, so this particular individual was found in his bedroom or bathroom. I can't remember where the paramedics said they picked him up, and family just walked in, and he's laying on the floor moaning. Like that's even if I don't know somebody, for ninety nine percent of my patients, that's not normal, right? Yeah, um, sure. You know, we we rubbed into him because it caused a pain response to see how responsive he was. He moans a little bit. We ask him questions and he answers one or two word um, answers to questions that, you know, you and I would give a much more verbose response to. Those are all very clearly altered. Unless Mm -hmm. someone came in and said, you know, this is how he normally is. I have to assume that that's not his baseline. That makes sense. And there's a lot of different things that can cause someone to be altered. So low blood uh, oxygen levels, low blood sugar, low blood pressure, having an infection, having a brain injury, getting cancer, um, ingesting a chemical or a toxin. There's so many things that can cause you to be altered. And so paramedics calling in saying we've got this altered, you know, guy in his 50s. COVID was not on our um, or not immediately on our differential, you know, even though we were, we were in the middle of a surge, even though we were in the middle of, you know, a third to a half of our ER being filled with COVID patients, um, you know, we were still practicing emergency people. And so we've got to think about all of the different things that could cause that. And then we saw the chest x-ray and said, oh, is that, is that really this guy's problem? And, you know, mm-hmm. still kept it broad until we got other blood work back and other imaging back. But eventually that was his problem. And it was, um, it was not something that we were expecting. Why weren't you expecting that? Again, there's just so many other things that can cause someone in their forties or fifties to be altered. Because Um, they didn't 
they didn't say anything about, oh, he's having trouble breathing or something like that. Correct. So he's not having trouble breathing. Oh, he's been sick for a week. He's got fevers. Like mm. um, all of these other things that could point us toward an infectious cause. And even then, you know, COVID is just one disease amongst many that are still in the community. So there's still bacterial causes and there's still blood infections. There's still all these other things out there. I This actually brought up a question that I was hoping you could dive into, Dr. Blomgren, which is, I should just say Kyle. It's a lot more natural. But <laughs> but what does, maybe not for the, the Smurf, but what is the, when someone gets the ER, they aren't, they don't look like they're on a trajectory to the ICU, but they're just in the ER. They have their, their snow white chest x-ray. Is there a typical course of treatment that what, or what would the, is there a typical experience for COVID at this point, or is it still totally random chaos like it was a year ago? It's really hard to say what is typical right now, because if you want to dive into what is really typical. I tried to narrow it down to just like they're in the ER. Um, Well, so in the ER, in a normal day outside of COVID times, um, I would send 80% of my ER patients home. And this is, you know, national statistics. And I would keep about 20%. I had multiple shifts last month. Um, and I'm, I'm not on the ER rotation now. I'm on a different rotation now. So I'm not. Um, but last month when I was in the ER, I had multiple shifts where I admitted everybody. And so that alone is not normal. Um, right. And there's, there's a variety of confounding factors for why that was. Um, but as far as the COVID patient in particular, it really depends on their presentation and their ability to take care of themselves and what other supplemental care they need from us. So if you're, you've got a fever, you've got a cough, you don't feel good, you've got kind of the body aches, you lost your uh, smell and taste, but you don't need extra oxygen from me, your oxygen level doesn't plummet when you walk down the hallway, you could probably go home and just do all the things your mom told you to do with a normal flu hydrate, rest, take some Tylenol for fever and, you know, stay away from everybody else for 14 days and you're probably going to be okay. If you need a little bit of oxygen and we're in an area that has the resources to do this, and I don't, I don't think the, uh, Cumberland County is one of those, but, um, it's just, that wasn't my experience. So I'm not entirely certain of how many people are doing this, but if you just need a little bit of oxygen, but everything else is okay, we might be able to send you home. Um, kind of looking through some of the recommendations out there that is described. Um, I know in a county up here, uh, at least third hand, that was described to me as something they do is send people home with oxygen. Yeah. And so if that's the case, you're you're getting a little bit of Decadron or Dexamethasone. It's a steroid. Um, but otherwise, that's the only other medical intervention outside of kind of standard viral care that we would do with you. The dexamethasone, is that the asthma steroid, the inhaler? It's one of them. There's a lot of different um, steroids that we can throw at people depending on what they're... Uh... But it's the, is, it, is it like taken with a puff? No, dexamethasone is a pill. Okay. Isn't there also remdesivir? So remdesivir is an option. Um, and right now the latest recommendations for remdesivir, and I because I don't want to misspeak, um, Rendezvous, where did I have it? 
if you want, you can also say, yes, that's a treatment, but you're not familiar it, with it. It is a treatment, um, mostly for hospitalized patients. Mm-hmm. So um, if you are sent home with oxygen, usually you're not sick enough for remdesivir to actually make much of a difference is what yeah. the latest recommendations I'm looking at right now say. But if you are hospitalized, remdesivir can be helpful. Outside of those two medications, dexamethasone and remdesivir, it's all what we call um, supportive care. And supportive care can be anything from, you know, a little bit of Tylenol for fever all the way up to um, what are called vasopressors or medications that increase your blood pressure because your blood pressure is too low. Hmm. Um, so supportive care can be a, a very broad um, term depending on how aggressive we have to be. So in Idaho, I think they were down to like four spare ICU beds last week. So they're probably out at this point. And one of the things the governor put out was they were um, trying to create facilities for monoclonal antibodies development um, or production or what's, what is the, are, are you familiar with the antibodies and why they've gotten uh, press? So what the monoclonal antibodies do is they are um, specific for COVID-19 and they act like the antibodies that your body would otherwise normally make if you were vaccinated or you've been pre-exposed and they're just neutralizing antibodies. Um, and so for the spike protein in particular, they essentially cap the end of the spike so it cannot then go off and infect another uh, cell. There are other antibodies out there that um, make it easier for the immune system to uh, hunt down and destroy antigens, whether that be COVID or something else. And so all of these monoclonal antibody uh, treatments for COVID are just ways to help your innate immune system do its job better. Okay. Now now I'm going to ask the... Uh the the conspiracy treatments um let's let's get into those you didn't ask you didn't talk to me about this kyle (laughs) uh actually so or daniel's not responsible for this for this content i do want to talk about i I, actually never mind i'll wait kyle you have some conspiracy theories you want to ask dr blomgren about yes yes um I, i wanted to ask about ivermectin not because it joe took it along with z-pack and vitamin d and zinc did, and a whole did joe rogan have covid he did yep. oh. um but because of something i read in the in the in the paper put out by dr Corey about the anti-inflammatory pro- um properties of ivermectin which was Intriguing to me if it's true, not just for COVID, but for um, other applications. Now, I'm going to like start this by saying if anyone's going to a farm supply store and getting ivermectin there, like that's just I'm not a doctor, but I'm go- I'm going to step out on a limb and say that's really dumb to get something that's made for animals and put it in your own body. Um, but f- they do make ivermectin for people, as I understand. And it is prescribed to people. Now, I, I think you had mentioned when we'd been texting back and forth that, that it can have, uh, or you've seen issues. And I wonder how much of that is like people, 
ingesting large amounts of stuff that's that was produced for a horse, not for a human, and they're doing it in large quantities. And how much of that is just the inherent risk of ivermectin for various organs? Because if there, if at low doses there's not a risk there, I was curious about it as a replacement for or a substitute for something like um, acetaminophen or ibuprofen. So I'm going to be really disappointing to you, Kyle. Okay. Does it not have any anti-inflammatory properties? I don't know enough to speak uh, to why it it has anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, there are antimicrobials out there that do assist with um, inflammation. Azithromycin, I think, is one of them. Oh, so that's but why the ZPAC has gotten popular. But as, but as far as ivermectin... Um, I don't know the mechanism behind that. I don't know the, the data behind it. So I can't speak to why other than just seeing the anecdotal reports of um, complications from ivermectin. And again, right. whether that's because of a dosing thing, if it's because of formulation thing, I don't know. Got it. Well, so <laughs> I've got... Uh, why do you have to speak like so professionally about this? Because you keep calling me Dr. Blomgren, so I've got a <laughs> reputation to, uh, to uphold. So Kyle, same question. <laughs> I go back to yeah. my boilerplates. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so I got I got a question then. Uh, well, actually, Kyle, do you have any more conspiracies that you'd like to? No, that was the only one. That and, was the big one. Okay. And really, the the one I the reason I was interested in it is the it was not so much on the COVID side. I mean, not so much on the COVID side. It was more like. The, 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 the meta-analysis, which I know people have had various reactions to how good of a meta-analysis it was, uh, referenced the anti-inflammatory mechanism as a reason it was helpful for COVID. But mm -hmm. that got me thinking, oh, what else? Because so NSAIDs have, have negative effects on connective tissue, um, at least in, in large doses. Yeah, I will make a, a comment about meta-analyses in general. The quality of the meta-analysis depends on the quality of the data that goes into it. So For you sure. can't take a room of three second graders and try and make them into a sixth grader. That's right. not that's not how that's going to work. In the same way, you can't take a whole bunch of really bad data and get a good meta-analysis out of it. So just because something meta-analyzes and says ivermectin could do X, Y, and Z doesn't mean it's actually good data. And one of the difficulties of um, scientific communication See, we have to bring this around an hour after we started. Um, one of the difficulties of uh, scientific communication is being able to say this is good data. And how do you differentiate the different, you know, good research, good studies versus bad? Um, there's a podcast I listened to by MRAP, Emergency Medicine uh, Reviews and Perspective. They do uh, 30 papers every single month on a variety of emergency medicine topics. And every last paper, these two um, physicians that review these papers have methodological issues and rip into each one of these papers. Oh, they did this wrong. They made this assumption. And, and in the end, a lot of them, they say, well, this was a good paper, but there's still issues with every one of them. So mm -hmm. we, we can't just, just because, oh, there was a study that said, you have to look much deeper into it to be able to say, well, did the methods they employ actually answer the question that they set out to answer. Um, did they actually get enough people in their study or enough samples in their study to be able to make those claims? Was it powered enough to be able to 
properly assess what they were looking at. There's all sorts of different areas where research can fall short. And unfortunately, we're at a stage uh, medically, culturally, where people are being paid to produce. Therefore, they produce a lot, whether it's quality or not. The, the vast majority of medical research these days is not all that great, you know, because you've got medical students, you've got undergrads, you've got, you know, fellows that are producing research just because we have to. Um, as part of my residency training, I have to produce a research project by February. Well, does that mean it's going to be really good if, if I don't care about producing research personally? No, I'm just going to do what, what I have to do to meet that requirement for my graduation. And, and Can you yet, look into ivermectin? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's where you get kind of this, um, this challenge because you'll have individuals of the lay public you know, see something on, um, you know, HuffPo, oh, well, scientists say X, Y, Z, but then you actually dig into the research and it says nothing what HuffPo mm -hmm. claimed it says. And even within their own paper, their methods and their results don't support the discussion that they had. So there's, there's a lot that goes into analyzing research that even um, scientists have a hard time doing well. So this kind of brings me to kind of my, you know, when I was talking about at the very beginning, what I wanted to, to ask about one was, one was empathy uh, in talking with, so I, I've got a buddy who was telling me, so his wife got COVID like, I don't know, two weeks ago or three weeks ago or something. And then he got it and, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. And he was saying, like, yeah, she, she had it pretty bad, but we didn't know anything to take. And so I've been taking, I've been taking a lot of vitamin C and ivermectin and, um, and it's, it's going a lot better for me. And I just didn't, I basically didn't know how to respond because he's not, he, he's, he's got two kids. He works full time. He does not particularly care much for reading research. The people who he talks to, would I would be surprised if they didn't recommend ivermectin um, and maybe they even have horses that they could just borrow the ivermectin <laughs> from, you know, and, and it's like, well, how do you talk to somebody and how do you how do you make sure that what you're how you're saying what you're saying doesn't get in the way? Because if you if you lay into somebody or basically say like, hey, uh, friend, you're being kind of an idiot. um you know, and even even Kyle, the way that you had said you're dumb if you take ivermectin for horses, it's like, well, maybe that's true. But if somebody really was doing that, that's not the in my opinion, at least that's not the way to communicate that with them. I, I don't mm -hmm. think that that probably applies to anybody like who's listening to this right now. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it does. And and I've just put my, my foot all the way in my mouth. But yeah, it's like, so as a doctor, like, how do you, how do you talk to somebody who doesn't have the time or inclination to do that? Or mm -hmm. do you, are you trained in any of that in, in any of your schooling or yeah. What do you, what do you think? There, it's Mr. becoming Bull? more common to have empathy training as part of our core curriculum. And my institution did a really good job of, of preparing us for, for those sort of conversations. Um, it's traditionally not been a very, um, you know, high focus, but reality, you know, obviously COVID's brought to light that this, this needs to be a higher emphasis. 
in regards to how do you speak to somebody, the best thing that you can realize is that they are going off of what they know. And um, I'm going to borrow an analogy from uh, Zubin Demania. He's a uh, goes by ZDog MD. Uh, he's a um, Stanford trained internal medicine doctor who's now a still a physician, but internet personality. He does a lot of really good um, talks on COVID, on topical medical um, issues. And he has an analogy he refers to kind of the elephant and the writer. Um, we are all in our brains as if we are, you know, a small person riding on a big elephant. And that elephant is the emotional, is the, um, the, the, the primal feeling part of our mind. You know, it's big, it's lumbering, it'll go wherever it wants to go. The writer on top is our intellectual, you know, ability to reason. And maybe sometimes the writer can get control of this elephant and be able to steer it in the right direction. But if the elephant really wants to take you away somewhere else, it's going to. In the same way, we all as people respond to our most primal um, feelings, which in, in this case with the pandemic and, and the unknown is fear. We all are afraid of something. And so when we, you know, and I, the royal we of, you know, the average person, when we are faced with something we don't know, we go looking for information and the information that speaks to us is that which agrees with our primal elements of fear. And so when somebody goes and they research, oh, ivermectin works, it's because it, the way that that data was presented speaks to their primal fear. They, the results of, you know, doctors are not going to tell you this because they're keeping it from you. That speaks to someone's, you know, innate mistrust of medicine. Um, that speaks to somebody's desire to do, you know, the, that's what they're, the doctors they're keeping from us, that kind of, you know, feeling. Where when you get that perspective, that that is where someone's coming from, it makes it a lot less of an adversarial discussion. You know, they're not taking ivermectin because they are an idiot. They're taking ivermectin because they saw something that spoke to that innate uh, feeling of fear that spoke to their elephant. And mm. when you're able to understand that, you can then frame the discussion to again, speak to that elephant and say, well, you know, I understand that that's what somebody, you know, that's what you read. That's what you heard. Um, but here's some of the, the problems with ivermectin and the research and, you, you know, frame it through that personal fear kind of um, not to make them scared and judge them, but to say, what are your actual concerns? Your concerns are you want to do what's best for you. Great. Ivermectin may not be that solution because if you're going to the farm store and getting horse concentration, that's going to be at a dose that could actually harm you. Um, well, the vaccines, they're new, they're rushed, they're scary, all of which has been uh, disproven. We can dig into some of those uh, if you'd like. Um, but to be able to say, no, well, these vaccines were actually under research for more than 10 years. They were they were made for uh, the original SARS that came out of China back in the early 2000s. And so when coronavirus came around, it was just a couple small tweaks to the code. So these are not actually only a year old. They're actually more than a decade old. The number of patients that we studied was the same number of patients, if not more patients than we study for any other medicine that's on the market. Um, you know, 
and and it gives you a different perspective when you're speaking to someone again it's not adversarial at that point it's trying to understand why they ran to something else in the first place and again it's through that lens of fear and concern that's interesting i've never i haven't heard that uh that analogy before i'm not 100% sure i agree with it but that doesn't mean i just have to think about it a little bit more cuz i i guess i just i don't I guess I don't like the idea that uh, that I make would make many decisions or all of my decisions out of fear. Um, and so then I don't like to think that about others either. But that definitely, yeah, yeah, I just have to think about it a little bit more. And we all have basic driving forces. Fear is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, then there's also hunger and shelter and protection. Um, but as far as you know, what keeps people alive and what has kept us alive for thousands of years is kind of this basal um, underlying fear of, you know, that's why we build a house strong enough to withstand a hurricane. That's why we store up food for when the dry season comes, because we're afraid of dying of hunger or, or we're afraid of the storm making us cold and wet or, you know, what, what have you. So when, um, when Eve took the fruit at the devil's temptation could we trace that back to some sort of fear or and the reason i ask is i think of that more as a desire for um control (laughs) couldn't couldn't desire for control be a fear of lack of control right right and 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 you could spin it that uh, not spin it that way you could say spin that's fine (laughs) you could look at it from from that lens where where she had a a fear of god holding something back from her and mm-hmm. so out of because of that um she saw that the fruit was good to eat god had said no she saw the fruit um was looked look well, let's see it was it was pleasing to the eyes it was good for food and it had the ability to make one wise, so, which which are all three good things. But she, yeah, I, I guess either either way, she she there seemed there seems to be something to what Kyle's saying here about that that fear of of giving control of one's destiny over to another whether that's talking about adverse reactions to a vaccine or that first original sin of adam and eve eating the the fruit in the in the garden i mean i mean milton takes that with adam as okay eve eats the fruit and adam's afraid of losing community with her and that's why he eats the fruit um so this idea comes out of uh literature as as well and i i focus on fear just because that is generally why people come and see medical care they're afraid of something but right absolutely the desire for control could equally be um, a driving force for even that situation she may have had some underlying fear of being controlled or fear of you know having something withheld from her but she also um just as equally could have been driven by a desire to know, a desire to be involved, a desire to control, or, or what have you. 
Mm-hmm. Now, fear makes a little more sense as 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 studies that I have heard of have shown that people are more afraid of losing something than they are desirous of gaining something. So those psychological studies make it seem like fear is more likely to be that elephant. Um, it's really hard to overcome fear. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, you know, I've got three young kids and uh, almost four young kids. And we had the, the pleasure of going and seeing the Paw Patrol movie on Saturday. So uh, such, such quality entertainment. Actually, it wasn't, wasn't that bad. Um, <laughs> but to, uh, to spoil it for James, who probably will see it in three years with, with his you know, bud- burgeoning family, um, there's a couple of points where Chase, one of the, the, the police dog on the Paw Patrol, um, experiences fear. And, you know, you see him earlier on the movie conducting all of these high risk rescues and he's able to do it like, like nobody's business. But he's then thrown into an environment where he's already got a history of fear. And now add that to a, a high risk rescue that he's trying to perform and he shuts down and he he hides in the corner and he's unable to perform his job anymore because of fear this you know cartoon dog who is able to jump off of bridges with a zip line and and rescue people that are 17 times his size with no problem is reduced to a quivering puppy because of fear and it's really hard to overcome that um that base emotion of fear. Hmm. So how did he overcome his base emotion of fear? What did it, did his friends come around him and support him? And they did, they did. He got, he got vaccinated. That was how he got vaccinated over. against fear. <laughs> it was new MRNA vaccine against fear. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, sometimes it's always kind of interesting that I, I, that I think about related to fear is that one of the things that, one of the things that overcomes fear is movement for me, at least. Um, and I see this, you know, so my wife, um, she works with, she works with animals. And if you drop a, a rat into a cage that it's unfamiliar with, uh, what it basically does is it stays perfectly still for a, a period of time. And if you put a, you know, as, um, you know, either of you might put your kids in school fairly soon, um, I think of, you're oh, old. oh, this is a whole nother discussion we could go into. No, we're not going to. No. <laughs> uh, if, you know, with a new group of kids, um, I'm thinking specifically of your eldest, Dr. Blomgren. Um, I could see I could see them being very still and kind of trying to take in the situation, not wanting to draw any attention to themselves. Um, and I see this actually with uh, um, there's there's a child I know particularly well and (laughs) and when he's with with a bunch of people he doesn't know he you know hides behind mom and dad's legs he uh he just basically watches he doesn't play with any of them until he you know and i I think this is probably fairly normal for kids but then once he feels comfortable then then there's movement and you can you can kind of um by doing something you can short circuit some of those some of those fear um i don't know synapses or those pathways in your brain because mm-hmm. once you act a certain way then you're you can change your 
internal state by changing your external state, at least somewhat. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, either of you. That's when why you look, I just tell my son to get after it. <laughs> when you look at you know people who do theater, actors, singers, dancers, when they are in a role, they have something else to do. Um, they've practiced those movements. They've practiced those lines to the point where they no longer have to think and feel about it. So they walk onto stage and they do it uh, based off of kind of their muscle memory. But you give that individual a microphone and you say, go out there and do just public speaking off the cuff. And most are going to shut down and, mm. oh, no, I don't want to do that. You know, they'll they get the daydreams of them in their underwear or what have you. Um, yeah. It's really hard for most people to do something like public speaking. They'll get out on the stage and they'll freeze or they'll stutter. Well, I've even heard that most really good public speakers practice a ton. So it is more of a a performance. Right. Mm. But it's the mobility of starting what they've already practiced. I would even say this format right here where we're just talking back and forth, this is still public speaking in a way. And, you know, when we started this conversation, there were more longer pauses. There were more, um, you know, how do I transition to the next topic or how do I start this? And now that we're deep into this recording, we're more comfortable just talking and, and going along. And that's that same uh, concept of motion kind of overcoming fear. I think your data may be slightly biased by the fact that Daniel and I are both waking up. <laughs> Just because it's bright and sunny and we've already done homeschool homework out here doesn't mean it's that early. I mean, I couldn't sleep, so I got up uh, quarter <laughs> five. So I slept like a rock until my <laughs> alarm went off at 530. All right, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, anyway, that's, uh, well, yeah, I appreciate I appreciate those thoughts about, about fear. Um, was there anything else we wanted to chat about? Did you have any questions for uh, for Kyle, Dr. Blomgren? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> between his blog and uh, just the occasional chatting we do. Oh, hey, hey. <laughs> we uh, we have some good news. We got, uh, we got paid for our podcast. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Amazon was very generous. And uh, I think we, well, I mean, so we withheld a large percentage of it. Wait, wait, wait. I got to tell the whole thing. <laughs> so I, I post uh, a lot of times if we talk about a book or we talk about some gear of some kind, which I, I don't know that we have ever talked about any gear, mm-hmm. um, but I'll just post like an Amazon, you know, affiliate link. And Amazon was like, here's your $20 and 50 whatever cents. Uh, but it takes us $15 to process your checks. So they withheld. So, so here's $5. <laughs> I haven't split it between us, uh, Kyle, yet. Yeah, that's, that's I, more than I've earned for my podcast. So I can't. Uh... I was just, I was really surprised. I was like, why is Amazon <laughs> sending me like, <laughs> anything? And then it was like, oh, right. wow, this is what it feels like to be rich. Hmm. That's nice. Passive income. <laughs> so I have about ten minutes before I need to go um, prepare for my next meeting. But okay. um, was if, if if unless uh, there was one last else question about COVID or coronavirus, I was thinking we could take a few minutes and talk about the other topic. Ooh. Okay, we wanted to try chat out. about. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, potentially having. Well, no, I think we'd like to do it. I think there's there's no potential about it, but having uh, Dr. Blomgren 
put on his GM hat and uh, game master or uh, a game. Thanks for, thanks for translating an RPG. Thank you. You're welcome, <laughs> Kyle. Uh, we're not going to, we can't call you. Well, we could call you Dr. Kyle in that too, but um, we'll figure it out. But yeah, having, having you uh, DM, would you say GM uh, a game for us? I don't well, know. it would be through uh, Dungeons and Dragons, so it would be DMing in that so case. So it could be DM. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, it would be both or either. Would I it could... be D&D or would it be Genesis? Uh, uh, Daniel asked for D&D. I think that's what he's more familiar with anyways. Is Genesis with the D6, though? Always? No. No? Okay, no Gen- we pl- it was the, the Star Wars game we did years ago. Anyways, um, so the, the way this discussion came up, um, or, or the reason we want to talk about it before just playing the game was Kyle had asked me kind of why gaming is important because, you know, for those that have listened to all, what are, what are you guys up to now? Like 17, 18 episodes of this podcast? Well, um, we've recorded 20, but <laughs> we've Kyle, recorded more Kyle than Morse 20. Does not, Kyle does not do anything that <laughs> uh, is not considered highly useful in his day. <laughs> and so how is, how is gaming... <laughs> That's very false. I, I try not to do anything that's not highly useful in my day. <laughs> <laughs> so how is gaming useful? And and one of the um, gaming modalities that Daniel and I and our friend Circle have taken part in for a long time is the tabletop role-playing game, where essentially we grown men and women, if we invite them, uh, sit around a table with weird-shaped dice and play make-believe for three or four hours at a time. And how is that actually a useful skill that we can uh, uh, justify dedicating our time to? Mm-hmm. And I think the big one of the big things to understand is that it's not just about playing games, even though games are fun and games are, you know, if you've been around kids for any length of time, games are how they learn at kind of that young level. A lot of it has to do with storytelling and why storytelling is important. You know, storytelling is the way that humans have passed information for thousands of years. Even in my day-to-day job, the only thing that I get paid for is telling a story. It doesn't matter what tests I order, doesn't matter what diagnosis I make, it matters how well I tell my patient's story in their note and then send that to insurance and then see whether or not they'll pay me for it. So storytelling as a concept is such a um, important basic skill that people need to learn. How do you paint a picture that gets people to want to think or do in a certain way in response to it? Yeah. Yeah. And a good story can be, can be particularly compelling. Um, and I think the reason that they're compelling is that it, it hits some kind of truth that's, that's inside that's, it's truer than, uh, truer than facts in a certain way. Mm-hmm. There's, and it's it's difficult to describe exactly precisely but there's you know when you can have fiction that reads very truly because with you know mere with a with a biography or a set of statistics there's just there are certain things there are feelings there are um stories that we believe about ourselves that when someone else puts them into words in a in a new or um, or in a way that that we haven't heard before, and we can really read them as they are, um, then it's it's just it's really impactful, and um, 
gives us, you know, reasons for reminds us of reasons for doing things that we might have forgotten. Um, the other thing I think that gameplay does really well for us is um, some negotiation, cre- like problem solving, creativity. Those are skills that are really useful mm-hmm. in our lives, um, and something that you know kids learn when they're playing games, but adults learn when they're playing games too. And if I try a negotiation tactic with with uh, Dr. Blomgren and he, you know, it, it doesn't find any purchase. It doesn't, doesn't strike true at all. It's like, well, then maybe you fail the, the thing that you were trying to do, or it's more difficult and, you know, or whatever. Um, It's skills building. It's practice for talking abilities, you know, just like a basketball player would go and dribble the ball and shoot at the basket. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to practice our speaking abilities. We have to practice our presentation for for business or for interpersonal you know relationships if i wanted someone to go out with me i need to give my one minute two minute elevator speech as to why i'm a viable candidate but if i do so in my current doctor voice they're just going to roll their eyes and walk away but you know you have to practice those interpersonal speaking abilities well and with a game the stakes are very low Mm -hmm. uh, relatively whereas if you're trying to make a pitch for a a business thing. If you've practiced twenty different ways to do something, then you know it's it's you're more uh, comfortable on stage. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'd really wanted to make some kind of joke, Doctor Blomkren, about the hero's <laughs> journey related. You know, because I think I've I've heard rumors that you have a uh, just real good feelings about it. But you know, yeah, maybe it's another, maybe another time. It's the only story that people ever know how to tell anymore. And it's, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> um, I think there's a reason for that. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Well, I think I, the I, other I, big part about storytelling is the ability to put yourself into someone else's shoes and to learn empathy. Because one of the, the difficult things we have as people is having perspective outside of ourself. So um, I know people I am close to, uh, there are times where events will happen to them and they'll believe, you know, this is the only, I'm the only person this has ever happened to, or, you know, no one else has ever experienced what I'm going through or gone through this before. But until you actually go out and you shake hands with thousands of people, or you've been into thousands of houses, like I have over the years with different careers, you start to realize that no, they may not be in this exact situation, but other people have been through similar things before. You're not alone. You're not the only one. And it gives you a sense of peace and a sense of, um, you know, purpose or, or motivation to try and progr- to progress and go forward if you know that you're not alone in something. And this mm. is why things like group therapy are so helpful because you can see, hey, I'm not the only person struggling with alcoholism. I'm not the only person struggling with um, you know, money problems. We're all in this together. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons the gospel is so powerful is it's not God telling us, go do this thing. It's, it's God saying, take up your cross and follow me. Here's what I've done. Here's what I'm calling you to come join me in that, as opposed to I'm the King, go do my bidding. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Kyle. 
Blomgren, I know you've you've got somewhere to be soon. Um, thanks for making the time. It's been it's been a really good conversation. So, so thank you. It's been fun. And uh, next time I talk with you guys, I'll be putting on really weird voices and uh, having you guys scrutinize my creative abilities. 